Welcome to Charla Cultural, a little chat about culture from Asterix Journal and City of Asylum. I'm Adriana E. Ramirez. And I'm Carla Lamb. And today's episode is all about Carlos Andres Gomez. Carlos Andres Gomez is a Colombian-American poet, speaker, actor, and equity and inclusion consultant from New York City. He is the author of Fractures, winner of the Felix Polek Prize in Poetry, as well as the memoir Man Up, Reimagining Modern Manhood. His work has been featured in numerous publications, including the New England Review, Beloit Poetry, and BuzzFeed Reader. We'll start by invoking the muse with a poem by Carlos Andres Gomez. And then, after Carla and I chat about his poetry, we'll listen to another poem and then an interview Carla did with the poet. After that, we'll conclude with the rest of his performance at City of Asylum. And finally, Carla and I will discuss remedios and some stuff for the road. Welcome. Carla, kick us off. Tell us a little bit about how we are going to invoke the muse today. Sí. Um, so Carlos Andres Gomez came to Alphabet City and performed at one of our Latinx and Proud installments. In so this uh, audio is an exclusive excerpt from that performance. Ooh, exclusive. This was from January 21, 2020. Um, it was an incredible lineup. Um, Dianelli Antigua was there. Rosa Iris Dionomi was there. And uh, up-and-coming young poet... Juno Nacimiento was there. Carlos, be, with like the kind of um, notoriety that he has as a poet performer, um, I think he has like so many amazing notches on his belt. Like he was Buzz in a Spike Lee movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like all these, these like, and I, I didn't even credits because I'm bad at life. And I was just watching this Spike Lee movie, Inside Man, and I look and I'm like, that's Carlos Andres Gomez, <laughs> and he's like unmistakable, um, personable. Um, um, I felt like I knew him for years, and I had just like met him that night. And no, that shines yeah, through. I yeah. think I think that inner beauty affects outer beauty. Yeah, it radiates. It radiates, and it translates too onto the page, onto the stage, onto his activism. Like everything that he touches, really just kind of implodes with like this energy oh yeah oh yeah and I just I remember all the work that he was doing at Penn back in the day Um, we competed against each other in collegiate poetry slam and so even though he was at the University of Pennsylvania and I was at Rice we still saw each other at tournaments and whatnot and then he was coaching Um, but he he's done a lot of work um, with diversity a lot of work with inclusion and again it's been really amazing to witness and dismantling like uh, patriarchy kind of oh he's very committed yeah. to, I mean, you just look at the title of his book, right? Um, Man Up, Reimagining Modern Manhood. And it's it's a great memoir, and I really suggest you read it. And coming from a Latinx manhood perspective. Oh, yeah. And especially, like, Colombians. Oh, as a Colombiana, I can tell you that masculinity is very complex in Colombia. I'm like, it is in many Latin American countries, but in Colombia, it has its own flavor. Mm. Um, it's very distinct, and it's really amazing to see Carlos taking up these issues, and especially as somebody who embodies two different cultures, being Colombian and American, um, thinking about what you bring with you from those cultures can really make a difference. Oh, yes. Like, what do you pack in your bag of identity, and what do you take with you when you have the option to think of culture um, as hybrid, right? As something that you can take and leave behind certain pieces. And I think that's one of the things a mixed identity can really offer you. Like what serves you and what doesn't? Or like what 
Well, that's hard because yeah. some things are sort of ingrained mm-hmm. and are really hard to like take out. But I think other things, you know, like looking at your culture's masculinity, for example, and saying, hmm, I think there's a different way, you know, and the privilege of being bicultural uh, allows you that room to play in a way that if you were just Colombian, it would be a little bit more difficult. There'd be more ah, friction. Ah, sí, 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 claro. You know, but being Colombiano-Americano means that, you know, your Colombian relatives all think you're crazy anyway, and Americans all think you're crazy anyway, so you could play in that crazy space, you know, and really kind of have a different possibility. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Sometimes I feel like I, I'm still working out all of these ideas. Mm-hmm. Same here. <laughs> So I apologize. This is the raw dough of idea uh, of ideas here. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's listen to Carlos read. See. So there's this question I've gotten my whole life that I'm sure a lot of people in this room can relate to in some way. That's followed by an almost identical question after you respond. And so I want to dedicate this to anybody who can relate to this question. And uh, the title of this poem is the question. And it's called, where are you really from? Where are you really from? Where are you from from? It goes like this. The man's words to me are not offered, but flung. So what are you? Where are you from? I say. Uh, New York. But your name. Your name is Carlos. I mean, where are you really from? I say. Uh, New York. Bueno, yo soy Latino. Mi padre es colombiano. Mi madre es estadounidense. Nací en New York City. I lived in four countries, moved 12 times, went to 12 schools before I graduated high school. Is not what I would say in 12,341 years because I don't know a damn thing to anyone. What am I? What am I? A financial aid form, a vegan red velvet cupcake recipe? Dude discovers his first Latino with green eyes and suddenly appoints himself the authority on Latinidad. Like, but you totally don't look Mexican. Oh, Colombian. But like, what percentage are you? Do you speak it, though? Fluently, dance salsa well. Oh, but not both parents. You've been there, but not lived there. So you weren't born there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not a government questionnaire. I'm not an anecdote for your homogenous social gathering of your homogenous friends. I know everyone you hang out with looks like you. As a name you are able to pronounce and or share and or sounds pulled directly from an episode of Leave it to Beaver. Here's the deal. Latin America is not just Mexico. Actually pronounced Mexico, pero whatever. Central America is not part of South America, and Mexican is still not a language. The question, where are you from in our current America, is a slur disguised with a question mark. A passive-aggressive microaggression saying you are other, saying you are not from here, saying you are not nor will ever be one of us, saying go back to where you came from, but I, I am from a place beyond place, a place where once you're from there, you can never leave because it exists beyond dirt and flesh, beyond your linear and limited concept of time. I am from bloodlines unkillable as water. I am the return that is only earned when absence has stretched its gritty void across a passage as stoic and sacred as Nabuela's hard-edged love. I am my black and Latina daughter's grace. 
chimered into the cobalt pulse of these once too often fists, I am a boy. Without a word of English in his mouth, in a Catholic school classroom in South Florida, his son on a stage in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, at Alphabet City for City of Asylum, 61 years later tonight, reading this poem. For him, I am the steady ray of light unlocking my mother's teeth, tossed skyward with a laugh. What hard-earned joy looks like carved from the wreckage of a lifetime's worth of grief. You are not ready for the answers to the questions you ask. Not ready for the worlds these words might shake free. You could never understand what I am or where I, where so many of us are from. Carla, have you ever been asked where are you really from? Where are you from from? Where are you from from? <laughs> so, yeah, like, what are you? Or, like, you look like an exotic artist type, but I can't figure it out because I need to put everything into categories question. Oh, yeah. I mean, th- that doesn't really happen to me because I am brown. <laughs> there is, I do not deny the cross with my parish, um, although I'm Jewish, so I guess I shouldn't really make too many Catholic metaphors. Um <laughs> But, like, definitely, um, you know, you look at me and there is no denying the indigenous and the all the things that make up who I am. Um, but you kind of exist in this liminal space, right? Yeah, I'm definitely, like, white presenting. Is that a way to say it? <laughs> sure. Yeah. But potentially. I think it, it also, like, how, if, if I may, like, yeah. how you present yourself can change that right so like how you dress up or accessorize or totally well if i was wearing like a a wipil right but i'm still white skin i don't know right it's something i i I very much struggle with internally and externally um just like how do i present myself porque a lot of people you know um (laughs) the frick museum it has a an exhibit on frida kahlo and four people invited me to it so (gasps) oh you're mexican you would love this yes Oh no! I didn't. Yeah. So I mean, and I'm all about like, oh yeah, let's go. <laughs> or like, oh, you want to take me to the museum? Like, fuck yeah, I love uh, it. I, um, yeah, no, I but, understand that feeling completely. And like, kind of circling back, like, have I gotten this question? Like, yes, many times. Uh, and then it's like the struggle, the short answer or the long answer, you know? Right. So you're like California. Yeah. And then they're like, no, no. Where are you really from? And there's been a couple times when I've had that um, I get the courage to be like, I'm from Mexico City. But then it's a whole other can of worms like, oh my gosh, for real? Or like, you don't look like, or... Right, you don't look Mexican, Mexican. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they just want you to say you're from Argentina. <laughs> yeah. that, makes, that makes everyone comfortable, you see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and then... Uh, well, Carlos talks about, well, maybe not directly in the poem, but between the lines. It's like the importance of self-naming and maybe self-identity right. or, or identifying. Well, like claiming you're claiming. What do you owe other people? Mm-hmm. Right. Like, do I owe you my entire biography? Um, you, know, you know, sometimes people will say stuff to me like, oh, where are you from? And I'll be like, Texas. 
and then they'll say, like, where are you really from? And then I'm like, I, I like what he does in the poem, right? Like, do I give you this whole list? It's like, well, my dad's Mexican and my mom is Colombian, but my dad's dad was Colombian. So three out of the four grandparents are Colombian, but I was born in Mexico City and I grew up on the U.S.-Mexico border. Yeah. So maybe I'm more Mexican, but also more Colombian. Ha ha ha. I'm everything, you know, and it's, uh, you know, and then it's like I'm fluent in English and then they're. People are thrown off completely when I'm fluent in Spanish, too. And they're like, wait, how can your brain hold two languages? But anyway, going back to the issue of, like, identity, you know, how much of your biography do you owe somebody casually asking you where you're from at a party or in an Uber or... On a questionnaire. On a questionnaire. Yeah. Like, white, comma, Hispanic. Um, I'm white, comma, Hispanic, you know, because I can't really check indigenous because I don't necessarily have a tribal affiliation Mm -hmm. in the U.S., Mm -hmm. which they ask you for. Mm -hmm. And so, and I'm, you know, like, I think I'm only like 5% black. So is that, you know, what is that? Where does that put me? Like, I just want to check all the boxes. (laughs) Well, there's, uh, yeah, there's like that little other box or like the fill in the line or like unknown but that doesn't it's not inclusive you know and then it's always like an existential crisis every time i fucking fill up fill out like what uh voting registration um census right like all no you're sitting there going doctor uh well and especially at the doctor because it carries a certain uh how people will treat you Mm -hmm. right and so like i remember when i was pregnant and they were like well you know, you're Hispanic, so that adds these risk factors. And while that's statistically true and obviously, like, true in many ways, it's also kind of fascinating when you're a mixed-race person because you're like, well, what does Hispanic mean? Mm-hmm. Right? Hispanic is a spectrum, and especially in terms of race. So when you say, like, Latinos are more prone to diabetes... Mm-hmm. Well, how are you controlling for income? How are you controlling for how indigenous or how white or how black you are? Or or is it something that is, you know, found like across the board? And if so, can you really attribute that to race or? So complicated and complex. Yeah, I don't know that there's an easy answer to this. See, this is what good poetry does. You're like... Oh, I relate to this. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, this is a really interesting questions. And now we're here talking <laughs> right? and about the complexity of medical treatment. <laughs> and, and Carlos's poem does that, too. Like in the poem, there's a line like the passive aggressive microaggressions, you know, and then it is that like every day for people of intersectional identities. Um, so I have a question for you. See. Have you ever asked anyone? where they're from ah that's such a good question i mean i can like positively say like i sure i sure i have but perhaps like casual i don't know i don't know existential crisis um like have you ever just wanted to know someone's like cultural background like that like just looked at them and been like not like that based on appearance and like yo where like where are your people from? no no right no. like that doesn't occur to me like if it comes up naturally in the course yeah. of conversation right then it might be like you know like if they say they really love sofrito i'm gonna be like 
where are you from? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, where are your people from? <laughs> right? Because okay, now so, we could talk culture. We could talk, you know what I mean? But like. I think the only part of me that people are like, okay, where are you from? Is like, so I grew up in Michigan. A lot of people would be like, oh, I'm from Detroit or I'm from Flint or I'm from. Right. Like the oh, where you upper, from? Pe- upper Peninsula. Yeah, but that's not what he's talking about. Like, he's, oh, right. Yeah. They're like, where are you from? from I'm kind of like backtracking on like, I don't know if I've asked somebody like off the bat, like because I can't pinpoint or like categorize them in my brain because of the way they look. I feel like I must have because I am a part of culture mm-hmm. and culture tends toward that place. Right. Yeah. And so like, I definitely know that I'm aware of a lot of the cultural backgrounds of a lot of my friends. So obviously at some point in conversation, it came up, right? Clearly. Clearly. <laughs> um, oh, that's so crazy. Cause like maybe some of my friends don't even really know where I'm from, from. Right. Like they know I'm Hispanic or they, they know I identify as Latina, but then every other hangout is like, you're from California, right? <laughs> I'm like, well, yes, yes, I am. Interesting. I do. I, this is something to, I don't know. I like, it's so easy to be like, look at all these jerks that do it. But yeah, we're part of, we're complicit in the, in the microaggressions. Oh, snap. <laughs> Who am I microaggressing right now? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's something to think about. It, it really is. And and seriously, not just joking, but. Mm-hmm. Well, also in the poem, like Carlos gives us the, the geography lesson. Right. You know. Well, and even as he's complaining about the question, he's also giving us the answer. Mm, yeah. Right. The poem gives us the answer. I did, too. Right earlier, I was like, I'm not going to tell you my biography. And then immediately I went into my biography. <laughs> right. And so we're so primed. Mm hmm. We're, that we're just like total conditioning of like, okay, here we go. Deep breath. Here's the whatever answer, the short or the long. Yeah. Do you want the short version do or the long have, version? <laughs> do you have an answer memorized that you give like your standard, like someone you yeah. just met? Yes, I do. I do. Um, the script. Yeah. My mom's Colombian. My dad's Mexican. And I grew up on the U.S.-Mexico border. That's really it. Yeah. Because Texas is never a good enough answer. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up in Texas. It's always like, oh, tell me more. <laughs> and yeah, you're just like, oh. I don't have a, a script answer. I always stutter and stumble. And I'm just like, uh, yeah, okay. Uh. Yeah, but I think, I think I wasn't comfortable. It took until I was comfortable with my own identity. And I felt like I had a clear answer. Sure. Like, I remember this discussion I was having with my good friend Angie Cruz once, and we were discussing whether or not I was a U.S. Latinx writer. Mm. And that's, oh, I like, not a question I think of often, right? But it's like, well, I was born in Latin America, so am I a Mexican writer? And because I became a naturalized United States citizen, right? So, but I don't really say Mexican-American. I say I'm a Mexican-Colombian writer. Even though I I write in English. Ah, that's the other thing. And I grew up in the U.S. And my literary education is mostly very much an American literary one. But with the caveat of having a full library of Latin American literature at home. And I was like, oh, snap. Like, you know, if I were to ever, like, win some kind of prize or become some kind of, you know whatever would people say she's a mexican writer i don't know yeah i don't know either i have the very same like i don't put mexican american in my bio were you born in mexico si oh, i didn't know chilangas that's right okay and i it's be and on my like social <laughs> media see what i just did yeah where are you from uh no soy de aquí no soy de allá <laughs> oh yeah. fecundo cabral 
This, there's another song. Um, no soy de aquí, ni soy de allá. No tengo edad, ni por venir. Y ser feliz es mi color de identidad. My dad sings that song on the guitar, but it's so sexist. Have you ever heard the lyrics? Like no. the verses, they're always like, I'm gonna go sing in the corner with Gabriella, or I'm gonna go chase Juanita, I'm gonna go on my bicycle and ask for rum. It's actually very Bohemian, but <laughs> it's a little, oh, sec- a-, a little sexist. <laughs> I'm looking for another a performer who's like a hip hop artist who uses that hook, like, no soy de aquí ni no soy de allá, in like her rap. Oh, that's really fun. Is it um, Snow the Product? Yes, Snow. <laughs> it's always Snow Fucking the Product. Fucking love that. And like, she's like, she talks about like her love for tacos, you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And being well, bilingual, you know bilingual, bisexual, and all of these oh, amazing yeah, intersections. I love Snow. <laughs> no, also. Okay. Um, but so that song is by this dude called Fecundo Cabral, who wrote it, let's say, in the 40s? Oh, the shit. What? Like 40s, 50s, maybe? Okay. Uh, I, I could be completely wrong. It might be like the 70s. But it's at least, <laughs> it was, it's at least, at least, at least like 50 years old, that song. Um, I would love to say for my answer, be like, no soy de aquí, no soy, no soy de allá. You know, like yeah. that's just like, I'm not from here, I'm not from there. For the Spanish impaired, that just means I'm not from here, <laughs> I'm not from there. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, that, and that's almost like claiming in a way. And it's, but yeah. is that a passive aggressive answer that I'm trying to like show someone a lesson? Well, maybe it, let's, maybe if we move away from the emotions of it and we mm. think of it as a post postmodern answer, mm. like you are beyond place. Ah, which he says in the poem. Right? Yeah. I'm beyond place. Um, yeah. And yet, and yet, how many times have you been asked in an official capacity mm. about where you were born? Right? And your documentation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, like, place matters when it matters. Right? But it doesn't matter in other ways and we're still sort of negotiating that like we live in a highly bureaucratic documented state where we have to present t- present paperwork for everything I spent many years doing workshops on Rikers Island which is the the jail in New York City and uh, this this is the final poem in my in my book Ijito and uh, it's called Morning Rikers Island Thank you all so much again. Physics and light pierce the hollow stench of the forgotten gymnasium stripped naked of clocks. All the adolescent boys stop, offer their grief to each other like water glancing out the only window they all share. A single ray unfolds its warmth across the dusty belly of the thudded parquet. And here's the miracle. The sun frees everyone to sing. Thank you. I started.
started to pivot to Zoom and do a ton of virtual events. And I've got three virtual shows today. Holy and shit. I think there'll be like 146, 147, and 148 since last March. So I'm close to 150 shows since last March. Oh, wow. So it's been, so like the pivot has been, it's been wild. You know, I'm doing like the, 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 the Abu Dhabi book fair virtually mm -hmm. next month. Um, I've done festivals in like different places in the world that I, I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't know if I'd be able to travel to anyway to do. Yeah. So it's been, so you're, been you're cool. busier than ever. <laughs> I've been absurdly busy. Um, you know, and I'm very, I'm very like, you know, I'm very humble. I'm grateful and I'm humble to what's happened so far because it, it's just, it's so disorienting. I mean, it's like, part of me is like, I'm very grateful for the virtual stuff. Mm -hmm. I, I would like some of it to continue so I can be home more. Yeah. But, but at the same time, you know, there's nothing like the magic of us, like at our event last January. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't explain what happened in that room last January. Yeah. It was definitely <laughs> transformative. You, you can't zoom that. Uh, no offense to zoom. Do <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? Like, you know, as I often say, I say virtual events have been so much better than I had initially um, imagined they could be, but they will never replace in-person events. Right. Yeah. They will never replace in-person events. Like people are going to cancel music festivals and just be on zoom instead or some other interface that's really interactive. Like that's not, to me, that's just not it. Right. Right. And well, with this, there's definitely like the silver lining to, um, you know, like staying in place, quarantining, all of that yeah, good stuff. Absolutely. And then the silver lining of, of course, zoom is the accessibility you know, 100%. and like the countries that you can't even travel to and, Absolutely. you know, people that perhaps wouldn't have been able to go to that show. Um, Absolutely. And I found that a lot with um, the Latinx and Proud series as we as we pivoted onto Zoom, um, we were reaching people in different countries that like. Um, I can't even name some of the countries that people like tuned in from, which was incredible for me because like post show, I would email the thank yous to the poets and then tell them like, well, according to our analytics, like yeah. we had people from South America, Central America, Africa, like yes. even like um, Southeast Asia, like all of these wow. places that these poets were like, what? Someone um, tuned in from where? And just like, yeah, yeah like someone heard your poem in Lagos, yes. you know, um, which is incredible. And I mean, I trust the analytics on, <laughs> on Crowdcast, but um, yeah. there's another, I did a couple um, Zoom poetry readings and it was always really interesting, like at the end and like how people clap, you know, or like the, they'll do this, the ASL, which I think is really beautiful. Uh -huh. um, and then, but also like, you just did like a high from the reading and it is transformative and it is, there is like synergy and it yes, um, across absolutely. the screen. Absolutely. Um, but then you're like, okay, it's over. And then like the zoom window closes and you're like, okay, well, what do I do now? Like, it's always abrupt. There's, <laughs> yeah. not that, there's not that decompression yeah. or there's not the decompression or debrief that I think is, uh, yeah. is also kind of so vital to like the afterglow of mm, a particularly it. a poetry event or a concert. It's like, Mm -hmm. I had a mentor in grad school, um, Rodney Jones, and he said, the most important part of the poem is the moment after the poem. Wow. And I think I a lot about that. that. You yeah. know what I mean? Like to me, the most important part of the event is like the moment after. It's like, and so there's something with Zoom that makes that is not possible in the same way. 
Um, oh, that's but so... yeah, but, but, but again, the accessibility piece you're talking about, I mean, mm. that's why I think even going forward, I mean, and I've got, you know, um, a lot of messages from different events I've done from friends of mine and supporters who have, um, real accessibility challenges who would mm. never be able to in-person attend an event for various reasons. And they've talked about how amazing it is for the accessibility of zoom and other platforms. And other folks have said too different, like people with, with personality types that are more introverted. People have said that they feel a lot more permission mm-hmm. to even like type in a chat versus wow. to ever come up and talk to a, to an author or, or a poet or performer. And that's stuff I'm definitely for. I mean, to me in my dream world, especially for like, as much as we can do it, I think hi- hybrid is kind of the model. Yeah, you know what absolutely. I mean? Like, I, I don't think that putting uh, like the poetry event on zoom is going to have people not attend in person. I think it just opens up accessibility. And that's why that's something for me that I think is, is something to be learned from the experience of, of COVID and the pandemic. Yeah, that's really well put. I definitely agree. City of Asylum is going in that direction, like the hybrid direction, which I think is great. And it also expands like, obviously like our outreach, our audiences. Um, And yeah, well, I want to like transition a little bit to the book, The Fractures. It's coming out sooner than already out. Sorry. I think I have a... No, it's all good. I think you might have an advanced one. Advanced um, one, yeah. Yeah. It came out in uh, October of uh, last fall. Um loving what I'm reading and it's really, it's really, uh, reminiscent, like having your voice, like having you, the part that I saw you like perform at city of asylum and then like knowing you, I could hear you through these pages. That's Um, a beautiful compliment. Thank you. (laughs) Yes, of course. Um, so one of the questions I wanted to ask was like this book having come out in the pandemic and like a, a book tour, possibly virtual um, format, but is there another book out there or other authors out there that, um, this book fractures is in conversation with or like, who are you reading? Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think, I feel like I'm in conversation with so many people. It's, it's almost hard to, um, or just sort of, I guess, streamline or just name a few. I mean, they're, 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 the writers I'm in conversation with who I, who I don't know, who are no longer mm-hmm. alive or mm-hmm. who have, you know, had an impact like Larry Levis or mm. Lucille Clifton or Audre Lorde or, you know, um, yeah, of course, but, the lineage. But then, yeah, you know, like, and then there are also, you know, writers who I love and I know who, you know, whose work or, or who I've met this, this is the spectrum of like dear friends to like people I've met once, like, mm. you know, like Angel Nafis, who's a dear friend to like Yusuf Komanyaka, who I've Oh yeah. Met a couple of times, you know what I mean? Or Martin Espada, who I know, but who had a huge impact on me even becoming, um, a poet. Um, you know, I think, I think, you know, I mean, I, I, I did, uh, Martin Espada had an incredible new book that came out called floaters. And I, and I did his, I did a release event with him. I interviewed him, was in conversation with him when I was 17 years old. You know, he was, he was the, the poet who really gave me permission. He like, opened the door and pushed me through the door figuratively to, to pursue, you know, the craft of poetry. And, and I think, I mean, the two biggest things from Martin, and of course, let me be clear, like I want to honor and spotlight Martin cause he's very important to me and very important to my journey, but let's be clear. There's like a constellation of different people that inform my journey. Um, but yeah, I mean, my, I think the two things about Martin are, you know, him being so unapologetically, uh, political in his work. 
um, and also being unapologetically like rooting things in in narratives wow, and often okay. in personal narratives. And those two things are things that I think anybody who reads my work, it's very characteristic of my work. You know, I mean, I'm I'm a very stereotypical Colombian in that way. Like, I just want to tell stories and hear stories. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's all I want to do is just like have a dinner that never starts. And we sit around for six hours and just tell stories, you know, and like my book is, is their stories and they're, and they're true stories and they're stories from my life. And they're, um, and obviously they have poetic dimensions and elements that are figurative or, or, um, symbolic or not literal, but, but there's always a, they're always rooted and anchored in a, in a real world and a lived experience. And that's something I learned. I mean, I think the, the, the biggest person who taught me at a really critical juncture of my own artistic journey was Martin Espana because he mm -hmm. does that as well as anyone. Wow. Yeah. That's something I really got from the poems. I was reading them and could feel and see and visualize um, like this scene that was happening. And it's to me, it was just like, I, the craft behind it, like stretching out a small moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really incredible. And that's something I strive for, like in my own work. And yeah, telling those like personal narratives of, you know, like your lived experience, your inner life. Um, and then also expanding outward and like talking about family and partnership and parenthood and and then like being um a, a male in the society you know too yeah, yeah, like yeah. that definitely just came out like um just yeah, reading I mean, from between the lines thank you yeah i mean as with my other you know my other writing and work over the last you know 15 years i mean you know it, it's it's it reckons you know i hold a, a mirror to myself and i mm. and i and i'm rec and i'm wrestling with the toxic ways um i was taught to think about masculinity and the ways i was you know inundated inundated by and with machismo growing up and when mm -hmm. I was coming of age and thinking about, you know, so the book I think holds a mirror to toxic masculinity and white supremacy and, um, you know, sexism and homophobia and a lot of the things that have been obsessions and things that I've been wrestling with through my work for a long time. Yeah. And, but, but, but I think it's, this is kind of a new brief arrival point and then mm -hmm. I'm going to continue to grow from here, but, um, that makes distinguishes it from other work that I've done. Yeah. And I noticed that too. I mean, it seems like it's always evolving. Like maybe those, those themes are like the through line yeah, but yeah, as yeah. an artist, you know, like you were talking about like the lineage of, of poets that you're in conversation with and then Martin sure. and how you've been given permission, but like the permission is ever growing and evolving and there's like more doors beyond the room that you're in. I, I, absolutely. I think one thing that's really powerful too, to think about, I mean, I think about, some of my most cherished mentors. I mean, Martinez Espada is one, Patricia Smith is another, mm -hmm. who's one of the blurbs on the back. And I've known mm -hmm. Patricia since I was 17. I mean, Patricia's, you know, an, an like iconic generational writer. I feel like she's like the godmother of American poetry. Yes. But, um, you know, or, and to so many of us, she's like a godmother. Mm -hmm. But, but, you know, even to see like the evolution of her work and that changes the way that she's a mentor you know mm. seeing her work grow and evolve over all the different work that she's put out and that's similar to Martin too you know like um as as his work expands and grows and he explores and challenges himself to do different things that impacts the way I challenge myself and I think that's to me what what is the power of artistic community and being and I think when you're in communities that are nourishing and I feel like I'm mm. really lucky right now we're in a really vibrant 
time to be writing. You know what I mean? When I think about people that I love and I know whose work I turn to, to learn from, you know what I mean? I think of like, like yeah. I said, like Angel Nafis or Human Win or Denez Smith or yeah. um, Safiel Hillo or when I mean, we just keep going on and on and on. Right. But I'm saying yeah. writers where like, I feel like we're in conversation constantly or Jose Olivares or, you know, like we're, we're all, we're all challenging and pushing each other and also holding each other up and also supporting each other and also loving each other, you know, and yeah. that's really powerful. That's definitely beautiful. I love all those folks you named, like all of their work is just jaw dropping. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, well, that's really, yeah, that's, thank you for that. Like really generous answer, um, which leads me to ask, you know, we're, we're, possibly writing from those wounded places in us that we've grown up with. Like you talk about like dismantling this uh, machismo that you grew up with. Um, can you, can you imagine a place where you're writing from like free of the cultural trauma ever? <laughs> yeah. I mean, to, to me, I think it's, I don't think of it so much as like an either or thing. Cause it's mm. interesting. Like I always, I often say, you know, I can't ever, learn or unlearn fast enough to untether myself from the damaging ways I was socialized. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know? Wow. wow, Yeah. Um, and, and I think like, you know, like one of the things I talk about, you know, this is a recent talk I was doing, I was saying how, you know, when I was growing up, I mean, among a lot of words that I, I'm not going to say right now, but ultimately the biggest insult when you were growing up was as a boy was for me to be called a girl or I was doing right. something like a girl. I was acting like a girl or I was crying like a girl or I was doing whatever, like a girl. And, and, you know, the, the example I gave is, is, you know, the fact that there's just a word or a designation that applies to nearly half of the population at an elementary school and that to be that is the worst thing a boy can be. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, it's, it's not really possible to overstate how horrific that is right? in terms of like what that what that scaffolds deep inside of me and internally. Like I can't ever untether myself from that. There's mm -hmm. no way for me to fully extricate myself from like the misogyny and the sexism and the rape culture that is, you know, implied in that. You know what I'm saying? And inflected yeah. through me through that. Through something like, and that's just one example among many. It's obviously part of a larger construct. Mm -hmm. Um like the paradigm of patriarchy and sexism and everything else. But I, you know I, I so so for me I think it's like you're constantly moving through this process where, you know, through my work, I'm trying to investigate mm -hmm. and pull things out of silence and shine a light on things that are, that are not being looked at or seen or paid attention to. And like, you're talking about like amplify and slow down those moments that maybe no one saw, or maybe no one knows about that I think are so powerful and instructive and, and worthy of being either celebrated or investigated or wrestled with. And so through my work, I feel like I, I always hope that I have the courage to continue to, to notice and to be mm -hmm. diligent in finding those moments and lifting them up through my work. And, and hopefully though, I hope that there is, you know, like, I hope that there is celebration and joy in the midst of that investigation as well. Like I think about poems in the book, like last Sundays at bootleggers, which is mm -hmm. in many ways about like, the sort of horror of being 15 and out at this all ages dance night with friends. And there was a lot of things that were like pretty horrific there, but there was also like beauty there. And there was also like, um, you know, I also felt a sense of validation and a sense of being seen in that room in ways that I'd never felt before while yeah. also feeling pressures to participate in some really toxic things. And I think 
that 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 sort of exploding the binary um, sense of that, you know, is 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 what I think and, and residing in that messiness is, is often what I'm trying to do with my work or, you know, a piece like praise, which is really about, you know, it's seeking out gratitude in the most difficult of times and even recognizing the, the, the almost like overwhelming beauty of of gifts that we have in our lives that may even seem like they're not gifts initially, you know, cause there's a lot of pain in praise, but ultimately it's a, it's a praise poem and it's, and it's a genuine mm-hmm. one. It's not like, I'm not trying to like find the silver lining in, in horrible things. Like it's really naming and saying, look at these, these gifts and the ways they happen um, in the same way that like, for example, I, you know, I, I remember saying this even during the pandemic, I was saying as hard as many of these days are with two small kids and being in a shelter in place and watching them struggle with the social challenges of that when they like deeply, deeply need to be with other kids, their age. And I'm like their best friend. Yeah. They're, they're like, they're like, you know, uh, villain, they're psychiatrist, <laughs> they're like food stores, like everything. Um, yeah. I was like, I, I'm going to like, I'm going to look, look back on this as maybe the best year of my life. You know, like who knows? Yeah, you know, wow. Even though it was the hardest. So definitely. Um, so I think, I think a lot of my work is trying to, to just reside in that messiness. And one thing I want to say is like, I never want my work to be spectacle or sensational or anything else. Um, but I also want it to not blink and not turn away from things that are difficult to look at. Um, yeah. I definitely so got that sense. Find, yeah. So to me, it's like trying to find that range. Like, can I still have, can celebration and tenderness still, ex, still reside alongside in the midst of horror and grief and shame? And I think that they can, because I think that's, that's how it works. You know what yeah, I mean? Like absolutely. To live a life. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. The humans are messy and complicated. I saw this social media post. And it had four pictures. And one picture is a black and white photo of Nazi Germany. One's a black and white photo of segregated water fountains in the Jim Crow South. The third photo is a grainy photo from apartheid South Africa. And the fourth one is this beautiful color picture of just like this nice house with a front yard in an unnamed town present day America, US, United States. And uh, around the four images it says, whatever you're doing right now is what you would have done. Twelve reasons to abolish CBP and ICE. One, when my father arrived in this country, the first words he learned in English were, thank you, to the Latina who sat beside him and summarized the teacher's rapid fire speech, thank you, to the snickered whispers he chose to ignore and the broad-jawed bruiser who pretended his Colombian immigrant classmate did not exist, thank you. To the mentors who combed through line after line of a language that felt to his tongue like braille to my hands, thank you. Two, 
A father of two delivers a pizza to a military base in Brooklyn. The military police officer who ordered it demands the father's naturalization papers. When the delivery man refuses, the police officer calls ICE. Some soldiers at Fort Hamilton ordered a pizza. They did pepperoni, green peppers, onions. I'm lying. Who cares? It was a pizza that might cost the father his family. The only tip the soldier gave was a phone call that risked making two little girls fatherless three. The first journalist allowed to enter Casa Padre called the detention center an internment camp. Nearly 1,500 undocumented children locked up in an abandoned Walmart, having committed no crime but crossing a border to survive three. The five-year-old boy who shares my name, Carlos, taken from his mother in Missouri and put up for adoption against her wishes, now renamed Jameson by the couple who stole him three. The pregnant women detained by ICE, shackled around the stomach and denied medical care while they miscarry four. The honors chemistry textbook at my public high school was missing one third of the elements of the periodic table. My English teacher would return papers with red wine stains and reeking of weed smoke. 60,000 bridges in our country are architecturally deficient. Is there nothing else we can do with this money? Five. The former chief counsel of ICE, who stole the identities of immigrants seeking asylum. A man who forged documents with a photograph of a murdered woman. Six, list of present day US states that were part of Mexico before 1848. California, Nevada, Utah, most of Arizona, close to half of New Mexico, a quarter of Colorado, and part of Wyoming. Seven, piles of confiscated rosaries in Brownsville, Texas like piles of wedding rings and gold dental fillings at Buchenwald. I imagine them hovered over someday by trauma tourists muttering, never again, again, and again, and again, and again, and again, eight. The son of a Syrian refugee invented your iPhone. A Soviet-born computer scientist invented Google. Even a Canadian invented basketball nine. Most terrorist attacks in the United States over the past two decades have been carried out by white American men. Most terrorist attacks in the United States over the past 200 years have been carried out by white American men. I have never seen a news headline calling a white American man a terrorist. 10. Border Patrol agents encounter a father, mother, and their three-year-old son from Honduras entering the U.S. across the border with Texas. The family asked to apply for asylum. The CBP officers say the family must be separated, physically restrain the father, tearing his three-year-old son from his arms. They place the father in a chain-link detention cell. They move him 40 miles away to solitary confinement at Star County Jail. At 9.50 a.m. the next morning, a guard finds the father, lying in his own blood, having strangled himself with a piece of his clothing. The father's name was Marco Antonio Munoz. The father was the same age I will be when my son Gabriel is three. 
His name was Marco Antonio Munoz. His death was not publicly disclosed. It did not appear in any local news accounts. 11, Jose, the five-year-old, carrying a trash bag of dirty clothes and a stick figure drawing of his parents, left behind after his parents were deported. 11A, the seven-year-old girl in a pink bow and dress, separated from her family. 11B, Johan, the one-year-old, playing with a purple ball and drinking from a bottle, appearing in court with his father. 11C, the three-year-old, separated from her family, climbing on top of the desk during her deportation trial. 11D, the infant from Honduras, pulled from his mother's breast, mid-feeding, separated from his mother. 11E, the developmentally delayed child, separated from his mother. 11F, the deaf child who is not able to speak, separated from her mother. 11G, 11H, 11I, 12. Upon whose bones do we stand? What? What will it take? <laughs> Clap if you drive. <laughs> Clearly not in New York City. There are a lot of drivers here. Okay, cool. Um, Clap if you uh, have like the classical or NPR station saved in case you get pulled over. <laughs> Truthfully. Okay, so I wrote this piece about the first time I got pulled over when I was 17. You ever had that moment where um, you notice the police car and you notice the police officer looking at the speed you're going as you realize you're over the speed limit? You ever had that, that moment happen? You're like definitely over by it a bit, okay? <laughs> Above the speed limit, true story. The first time I got pulled over, I turned to the classical station, rested shaking hands on the steering wheel, elevated my voice an octave, and made sure to blink wide and scared so we could see the white of my eyes and emerald irises in the late May sun. He didn't ask my name, never saw license or registration, said just, take it easy. So I did. So I do. But my son, now 14 years and five months from his first driver's test is black. What will he do? How much of my stare and smart mouth are imprinted? How will he understand why I can't sleep each night he's away from home and I look just like the men who too easily mistake the dark silhouette of his wallet for a gun. And now for the part of the show where we talk about what we're reading. Okay, so what's going on? What have you been reading? What are you up to? Uh, I just finished The Tradition by Jericho Brown. Oh, yes. And it was one of those books that uh, moved me to write. That's so great. Moved me to the, the writing table. I really love the form that he invented, the duplex. The duplexes um, interrupt the other poems in the, wor- in, in the book, the tradition. Um, and 
I usually don't, I'm not a formalist at all necessarily, but this definitely was like such a, um, a structure that was so it condensed me it like challenged me to stay oh, in like a condensed I form you know form you know that robert frost quote um writing poetry without form is like playing tennis without a net mm-hmm. you know you, you need the rules I've heard that, yeah. you need the structure i love it i actually find structure to be incredibly freeing um yeah. because then it, it i don't have to think of what the structure is and i don't know who said this but like if you know the rules you can break them yes yeah. exactly um and so i think it's a but every now and then i really love going back to form um i don't know that i've ever published a poem in form actually uh, but i have notebooks of like villanelles um i love villanelles um Going back again to Sylvia Plath, I think I'm going to try to bring up Sylvia Plath every episode of Charla Cultural. Uh, my high school friends, if they are listening, will laugh. Um, but um, she has this wonderful villanelle that's like the sting of bees took away my father. And I remember just falling in love with it when I was in high school because of the way it just kind of built and had this rhythm and the way it became very chant-like. So mm. I, I, I really like form. Um, so you yeah. really you enjoyed reading Jericho Brown's book. Yeah, it was incredible. Yeah. And, like, so much insight into, like, childhood, family life, uh, life as a an out black man. Um, and, yeah, like, his story, his, that, his narrative, I suppose. But, like, the fact that I felt moved to the page, it's just like, wow, like, that's what good poetry also does, you know? Someone that, like, like I don't have the identities he has, but I was right. still, like... I didn't say to myself like, "Oh, I can do this," but I do feel I do feel like, can I borrow the duplex? You know, as a Latina femme writer. Well, I think whatever you do in your notebook mm-hmm. is what you do in your notebook, right? And I think that when a poet offers a form, mm-hmm. the poet is offering you a place, you know, where you can play as well. Yeah. And so I think it's really about what you do with it more than anything. Um, But who knows, right? Uh, You know, I don't think... I mean, you see the golden shovel. I was going to bring that up. Yeah, Terrence Hayes. Right? People use the golden shovel, like, all the time. Um, And people of all ethnicities, all races, I've seen execute it very well. And so... What am I reading? See... Um, Okay, this is not a book. Uh, because lately I have two children under the age of three, obviously. And so reading is a luxury some days. And uh, my husband had to leave town recently. And so it's just been me and the youngest. And she's, you know, a little bit over a year old, as we know from Carlos Andres Gomez's performance date. Um, And um, the only thing I have time to read right now are summaries and discussions of Eurovision videos. That's right. I am obsessed with Eurovision. It is a thing. And I have a Facebook group where we post a Eurovision um, contestants video every day and we discuss it, usually talking terrible trash. And then sometimes afterwards, I like look up stuff on Reddit and read, spe- read people's commentary. And that's all I have had time to read this week. And I am not a apologizing because i love eurovision it is camp it is phenomenal it is a song contest it is my favorite thing it is ridiculous that i love it 
And yet I do. And I somehow managed to get like 10 of my friends also super into it, including um, my in-laws. My sister-in-law is wild. I'm trying to get everyone I know into Eurovision because it is so fun. Uh, And I was just reading up that there's something called the American Song Contest that they're thinking about doing. So they're thinking of bringing Eurovision to the U.S. And I could not be more excited, uh, which allows us to transition to Remedios. So what's going on at City of Asylum? Okay, so City of Asylum is launching the first annual international literary festival that we're really excited about. Um, It's a 10-day event that considers themes of migration, identity, and displacement with the emphasis um, on translation. So Asterix and Charla Cultural partnered up to present Rosa Alcala um, and the kitchen table translation issue of Asterix May 15th. Uh, 5.30 p.m. You can find the link in show notes. What about Asterix? So on the Asterix website, I encourage you to look at Sheila Maldonado's most recent poem. Um, It's called My Cuz. um, And it's a little collection of just tiny bits from her latest collection that's what you get um that's available for purchase widely um and it's it's got a bathtub on the cover the poems are fantastic they're brief they're delightful um please scope them out at asterixjournal.com um and we'll have a link pick up uh, maldonado's book that's what you get um and there's a link on the asterix website too so i hope uh people are getting vaccinated no i don't i'm getting vaccinated (laughs) today i'm getting vaccinated today um never i haven't been more grateful to be chubby oh you know what there's another vaccine story real quick Ooh. aside okay so we both have the um i think it's the smallpox vaccine scar by the way and then whenever people are like oh what's that scar and i was like it's from a vaccine in mexico that they were giving out still when I was born right in the 80s <laughs> me too I have uh, it so, as well so yeah it's like people are like speaking of vaccines and like I like to say I do have a script for that it's like yeah it like Mexico was still doing it but in the U.S. they had stopped this like vaccine giving scar thing that but yeah. I don't know like I don't know. No, I don't know anyone I wear else with, like my age. I think it's like a little badge of honor. Yeah. It's a, it's like a little secret club I'm in. Yeah. Um, it's actually really funny. Uh, the husband and I are watching Outlander um, on Stars. We're slowly working our way through it. Like one episode a month, okay? But there's a moment where um, a smallpox scar comes up. And I was like, hey, I have one too. Yeah. And I was just laughing because I was like, oh man, would kids watching this show even know what that was? And so I find it highly amusing. Um, me, you, and the old people. <laughs> I don't want to age myself. I lie about my age all the time, and I get it from my Mexican mom. Yeah, well, you who know. Looks, you know like, she looks like Frida. She looks indigenous. And she passes, or how the fuck? It's such a weird identity crisis. But, like, she can play many roles, and she embraces it. Yeah. Absolutely. That's so fun, though. Yeah. <laughs> also lying. <laughs> um, identity is a complicated thing. And we this is probably our not like not our last discussion on identity no. that we're going to be having because we're certainly always unpacking it. And I think that's part of what being Latinx in the U.S. is. Yeah. You know, is that people are always kind of wanting to put you in a box. Oh, my God. After this election, mm-hmm. so many things were like the Latinx vote. And it's like, dude, we can't right. agree on a name. 
Right, right. What you doing? <laughs> Trying to think we all speak as one. We're, we're all Carlos, unpacking this. Yeah. Carlos does a great job also, like, unpacking that in the poem. And, like, Mexican is not a language, you know? And, like... No, and it's not, it's not an all-encompassing identity. It's like when I'm in New York and people ask me if I'm Spanish. You Spanish? And I'm like... Well, it is the language we all speak. Yeah. But it is not necessarily, other than speaking a common language, um, there's very little that really unites all Latinos. You know, it used to be to some degree Catholicism, but Mm. even now religion's gotten so diverse that, you know, I I met a Jehovah's Witness from Uruguay the other day. Ah. And I was like, you, sir, are defying my expectation. (laughs) So, Ezequiel. What a great day. Um, okay. All right. Well, I think we're just about out of time today. So thank you so much for listening. This has been Charla Cultural brought to you by Asterix Journal and City of Asylum. I'm Adriana Ramirez. Y yo soy Carla Lam. Y buenas noches. Gracias. City of Asylum builds a just community by protecting and celebrating creative free expression. Asterix is a transnational feminist literary arts journal, co-founded by Angie Cruz and Adriana E. Ramirez, committed to social justice and translation, placing women of color at the center of the conversation. Charla Cultural is hosted by Carla Lamb and Adriana E. Ramirez. Voice of Goddess is Alexis Jabour. Editorial support by Clarissa A. León. Production design and brand management by Little Owl Creative. Our theme song is Colombia Folk by Luis Alfonso. And thank you as always to our sponsors, Asterix Journal and City of Asylum.